But it's great to be here. Um, me and Natasha, it's absolutely amazing for me because now I'm a mile and a half away from here now, and uh, I'm usually speaking a long distance away. And uh, I've got some of the lads with me and Kat. Kat, who, some of the, the lads and lasses, we, me and Natasha are discipling. And uh, I don't know whether you want to stand up, guys, and say hello to everyone. So it's David, Charlie, John, Kat, and Mark. So please pray for them, please. They're on a real great journey. There's some warriors there who are going to help change the areas where they live and already are. But I want to tell you something about uh, how God moves. We, we moved here. Uh, you probably, it's too long to talk about. But we moved to Darlington uh, out of a set of circumstances were very, very tough. And I really always believe that out, out of every death is a resurrection. And out of the, the death of us, what we've been through and the, the pain, I really feel more closer to God. Uh, my, I feel spiritually stronger. And I really believe that when we have problems, we can really grow from them. So we went looking for a church, me and Natasha. We went to the Glow and other places. And um, we, um, we came here because it's right near. So we just wanted to check out everywhere. And uh, we didn't want to come here first because that we thought that would be biased. <laughs> so we came because of Phil and Sally, obviously, when we first, um, when I first got to know the Lord, they were here. But um, what I was going to say to you is we came in the door and I was sat just there and, um, and with Natasha, my beautiful wife, she would be with us, but she's on her way to London. She left me now. I'm only kidding. <laughs> but she's, she's gone to see her mum and they've gone on a, a caravan. Uh, thing in Clacton because she's from Romford but we were sat there and we were worshipping and, and the amazing thing is Phil was worshipping leading the worship and I had my hands up like that and he was singing Hosanna and I went into a picture there was a vision as clear as anything so I met Phil and Sally on the 2nd of May 1997 at half past 7 at night it was nice and warm. It was a bit clout normally. Can, uh, I had my cap of tracksuit on, by the way, this famous cap of tracksuit, my favourite trainers. And I met Phil and Sally for the first time. The next day we went on the streets of Haddington and we went right near this post office and we were giving balloons out and sweets and lollipops. And Phil was singing. And I, as I was praying, as I was praying to the song Hosanna and, and worshipping Jesus in this church, at that vision, I could see us stood on the streets of Haddon. And I just reached over to Natasha and I said, I feel like I've come home. And she went, wow, it's lovely, isn't it? I said, yeah. And then Sally got up and said, welcome, church, blah, blah, blah. I said this and the other. And said, it's great to have our friends, Graham and Natasha, with us. But we met on the streets of Haddon. And I knew God had spoke. Natasha had all these Holy Spirit bumps on her. And uh, we knew that this church was for us. And then to seal it, Mike said to me, Graham, remember when I came into D-Bolt, Young Offenders Institute with you? And I couldn't remember it at first. And the more I looked at him, I thought, I know, I remember you were doing five years when I met you. <laughs> <laughs> But I remembered it as though it was yesterday and I thought there's too many God incidences 
there'll be anything. So we're here. You're going to get lumped with me and Natasha now and probably our visitors now and again. And, and any way we can help, we'll be with you. But as I say, Natasha said she's sorry she's not with us. So there's a couple of things. Mike asked me if I'd share my story because you've not heard my story and I wanted to share it with you. There's two things I want to share. I'm not a long distance away, but I usually say I haven't travelled. I give up my Sunday morning to come and lie to you because my whole life before this was a lie. I've come to tell you the truth because the truth will set you free if you know it. And some people in this room today don't know the truth. You've been walking with the Lord a little while, but you don't really know the truth. I know that because the Lord's already spoken to me. Also, I haven't come to brag about anything from the past. I wrote a couple of books. I've just finished my third book and got various little booklets out and there's a DVD. And, and, and to me, all it is is a tool to use to see people come to know Jesus because that's what I live for. I live for three things. One is to serve Jesus. The other is to look after my family, my, my Natasha, Caleb and Boaz, and then to see salvation. So I haven't come to, to boast about anything and none of them things that to boast about. But I want to tell you some, one of my favourite stories is about the prodigal son. And I, I, I like that story so much because it was like me. And I don't know whether you know the story very well, but if you don't, there'd be people who do. Uh, in the prodigal son, the story represents God's. There's a dad and he has two sons. And the youngest son... Um, what goes to his dad and says, I want everything, everything I'm owed. In a nutshell, he was saying, I wish you were dead. When I was a young lad, my mother sadly said to me, how much will it take to get rid of you? That's what my mother said to me. How much will it take to get rid of you? She was running a hotel in Durham at the time. I'd already chased my mother out of Middlesbrough. It's not good to have on your CV, by the way, is it? You kicked your mum out of Middlesbrough, where I'm from. But she went to live in this place called Durham, called Bowburn in Durham. And I said, oh, three grand. Three grand then was a lot of money, so she hit me with something instead and chased me and said, don't ever come back again. But what I'm seeing in this story, this young lad's gone up to his dad and said, I want everything I'm owed. Now, we say that to God on a regular basis, even if we're following Jesus at times, we say it. I often say it to the lads, and, and Natasha will tell the girls, where do you want Jesus when he's in your car? Where would you have him sat? Right next to you, but would you have him driving or would he be a passenger? I, I, I don't know about you, but I want him to drive my car for me. I want to follow him. I want him to drive me. But the sad thing is, what happens to us, Jesus starts taking us down Generosity Street, or Servant Street, or Blessing Street. We don't want to go down them streets. And I didn't want anything to do with anything else other than what pleased me. When I was a young lad, when I was a young boy, my life was in a ruin, it was in a wreck. My mum left me when I was 10. My, grand, my dad was non-existent. My nana was poorly, she used to drink a lot and she was in a mental institution all her life. She used to get electric shock treatment and go missing for months. And my granddad would be around, he was very disciplined, my granddad, they're both in the Second World War. 
My granddad was working the British Steel, double shifts to pay for the bills. But I didn't like anyone but me. I didn't trust anyone but me. I didn't know what the word love was. That word love, I thought, was a man-made manipulation tool that you use to get things that you want. If you say it to someone you love them, you can usually get what you want. In my world, where I came from, if I say I love someone, I can get whatever I want out of them. So I thought that word was just a man-made manipulation tool. And I'll tell you why, because my nana used to tell me all the time, usually after rumour black current, I love you, son. My mum said she loved me since she left. Now, I don't blame my mother saying to me, I don't want to know you anymore, you're dead, because of how I was, but I didn't see it then. And I went through a life where it was all about Graham. That song, it's all about Jesus. Who was it all about? Well, it was all about Graham. It was all about me, poor Graham. And we can get that out of our locker quite often, our oh, poor me. Don't you know what I have to put up with? I was listening to a story the other day about a man who had a problem and he asked for the local guy to come round the church, man come round and he said, for 20 minutes he talked about his problem, 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 problem. That was grand. Poor grand, poor grand, poor me. And this church guy said to the bloke in the end, I know a place where there's 180 people who haven't got any problems. He said, can I come with you and meet them all? He said, yes, yeah. so he took them to the cemetery. We're going to have problems. There's problems on, on this planet. But it was all about Graham. So what did Graham do? What did he first start doing? He wanted to belong somewhere. As we set off on a journey in our life, we always want to belong somewhere. We're born to die. We know that. You know, every one of us in this room will die one day. It's, it's, it, I know that's not very good news to some people, but it's good news if you know Jesus. See, when I... When Jesus left the grave behind, one day I will. One day we will. As Jesus left the grave behind, one day we will. And I knew nothing about that, only my own, my own self, selfish nature of I want. So what did I do first? Because it wasn't going right in my house, my mum's gone, my nan's poorly, I'm not getting my own way a bit. I mean, that granddad's moved us. We moved from a... Berwick Hills, where I lived, which was a lovely council estate, a beautiful place where I was living. Everyone knew everyone, we were all in the same boat. To a nice place where people had mums and dads and brothers and sisters. And um, I, didn't, I didn't fit in. And if I was honest with you, I was jealous. I wouldn't have told you that then, but I was jealous because these people had families, they sat and net together, they went on holiday together, and they seemed to know each other. I knew it was quite a posh area because cars had tax on. <laughs> there was bikes left out not long after. And then I seen white socks. I'd never seen white socks before. White socks on lines. The socks I used to see were grey. They started off white, but they were grey. So the washing lines in that estate where I live soon lost all their white socks. <laughs> <laughs> I'll sell them, I've got some with me if you need any today. <laughs> but I started stealing white socks. And, and then the other thing that I couldn't really get over on this estate was the milkman. We didn't have a milkman. He was Mike Tyson if he was. But this milkman, he left milk on doorsteps and yogurts and orange 
I thought I'd won the lottery. <laughs> I had a real business going. And then I, I meet this lad who works for the milkman. He's told me something I could never dream was true. He told me this thing that I thought was absolutely crazy. He said, people who live here put money on doorsteps on a Friday night. I thought, where have I come to? <laughs> I've got my own little banks everywhere. So I was selfish and greedy and I wanted what I wanted when I wanted it and I took it if I wanted it. Whether that was money, women, clothes, anything, I took it because I was owed it because of my past and what had happened to me. The first gang I was in was a skinhead gang. We were in uh, all kinds of things. It wasn't a racist gang, it was a gang that was into this word called anarchy. We just got into lots of trouble. We wanted to go against the police, anything to do with authority. And I loved it. I loved it because I liked to fight. I was one of the youngest in this gang. I was 12 when I joined them, and when I was 25, uh, one of them was 25. There was a lot of people in this gang in the town centre in Middlesbrough, but they were all knocked about in a place called Boyd Estate in Bramble's Farm. And we did things, we broke into places and robbed places and things like that and fought with other gangs and did all that. But all it did for me was get me a relationship with the police. They started to know me by name, which I thought was great. Now, Graham, where are you going? What a buzz. I'm 14 and the police know me. What an absolute badge of honour that is for me on the street. But then things get worse and things get happened. At 15, I get accused of murder and I'm locked up and a lad's died outside of a nightclub and my granddad won't come down to the police station because I need someone with me. So I get locked up and yeah, I'm getting interviewed for five days about this death of this man and this, this man's died as a result of uh, getting ran over and some of my so-called friends had said that I'd pushed this lad under the bus. Someone said, Graham's good at Kung Fu, he's held him with his foot down there and the, the, the man's being killed. But my social worker had to come, Linda Pease, she had to come to the, to the hospital, there, to the police station to see me. And I still didn't learn. I just thought the police are lying to me. My friends would never do that to me. They love me. I belong with them. I found my family. When I was 16, I went to jail. I went to a jail called Medemsley. It's like hell on earth, because only because you got told what to do. If you said to me, go left, I'd have gone right. If you said to me it was black, I'd say it was white. I did the opposite of anyone telling me what to do. I was so rebellious, I wouldn't listen to nobody. And getting kicked out of school in year 11, well, it's year five when I was at school, year 11 now, was great. It was legal truancy to me. I didn't have to go back to school ever again. I was that dead happy to get kicked out of school and living that life and getting into trouble. So I get out of prison, my granddad died, he had a massive heart attack, my nana went to live with my mum in Durham. Now at this point, I need to tell you that the nearest thing to love that I could ever imagine was my nana. She was the only nearest thing to love that I would ever think of having. She was great fun, uh, especially when she'd had a drink. And uh, there's too many stories to tell you, but she'd leave like cigarettes and rice She'd make rice and leave a cigarette in it and, and, that, and like you'd find it in there. I'd just dry it out and smoke it. It was quite rice. Quite rice this morning. Oh, sorry. 
<laughs> but she'd do things like that, and there was all kinds of things that happened. But there was a family nearby who used to feed me. When I was 16, I got out of prison and I start going my own way. I'm homeless, I've been to jail. I've got plenty of places I can stay in. But I'm, I'm just nearly 17, I joined a football firm. Now, this football firm was a bigger family you've called Middlesbrough Frontline. And that what they did for fun, they went around different grounds in the country and had fights. But you, you have to have wear nice clothes, expensive clothes, to go and fighting. Absolutely crazy, isn't it? So you go and get all these expensive tracksuits and, and, and so you need money. So I start going up a level in crime. But I think I'm going up a level in respect and life and I'm part of this gang and everything's going well. But really, I was just slipping down. It was like a slippery slope, constantly slipping down the slope. And in this time, I, I kept going in and out of jail. I went to Barstow twice, Diabol, and I'd get out of Barstow and get back to these matches. I'd been stabbed in the arm and chest four times and I'd been cut across the eye at West Ham. Was it over the head with like a sword? I've got no front teeth. Got a bit of my chin missing. I've had my finger chopped off. I've had uh, a bottle in both eyes. I've got like delves in my skull all over. The reason I'm sat here is because I've got now got uh, not only spondylitis, but I've now got arthritis in my spine. So my right leg, it after so long of standing up, just dies and I just collapse. So that's why I'm sat on my chair, my stool. But all these things that were happening to me, getting stabbed and going to jail and that, I thought was life. And then my nana died. My nana died when I was nearly 20, which was the worst day of my life at that time. And I remember going to the funeral, like really, really fighting back the tears. Because I'd stopped crying when I was 10. I'm never crying again for no one ever again. Unless you're drunk, because you cry about out then, don't you? You know, like a, a leaf fell off a tree or a cat crossed the road. You cry about out when you're drunk. But, you know, I was sober. I wouldn't, I wouldn't cry about nothing, ever. And I fought these tears back at my nana's funeral. And I went away, and it was like something inside was... This, it was going to explode. It was growing and growing and growing. And I couldn't get rid of it. I moved away, I went to jail again, I, went, I moved away to Wakefield. I thought, getting away from Middlesbrough, uh, that'll, that'll do me, I'll get away. I started working at a, a, a catalogue firm called Them My Stores. I was working there and I was doing good. But on the third week, something in my mind popped in there, like, you used to make more money than this in 10 minutes, 110 quid a week for five days on a Saturday morning. I used to make 100 and odd quid every 10 minutes. I was on like 1,500 pound a week in 1983. I was, I was part of this major counterfeit clothes stuff going on. And I didn't even know where it came from. But just if you look in Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 12, you'll see nine chapters before we talk about our eyes, you've got to talk about your thoughts. But this popped into my mind. It popped into my mind about... So I started robbing the factory. Now, if you knew anything about Empire Stores at Christmas of 1990, you got a free years in their watch set for Christmas if you joined the catalogue firm. So I was robbing them, selling them in Wakefield with a tenner a set. I was taking a bag home every night, 
bit like that bag you've got now. If you look right at the bottom, uh, they were on about a little gift at the bottom. There's a set there. <laughs> I've put a set in for you. No, I'm selling them at the back after the service. Isn't there what set? They were 10 quid, they're 15 quid now, inflation. But I've got the sack. I've got the sack from it. But do you know how deceived I was? When I got the sack from this place, I blamed them. I blamed them. I said to them, I said to this bloke, well, you knew what type of person I was. And yet you put me near the cupboard where they is. I was so deceived that everyone else was wrong. And I was right about everything. But I started to hear voices in my mind. My nana, as I say, was in St. Louis all her life that I was alive. She was in there every day, Monday to Friday, and then months after she had these electric shock treatment. One time we cut her brain open here and tried to let some pressure off. She had so many tablets every day. She, she, every morning she'd have a cup of tea, 10, 10 embassy, and some rum. But she'd have a load of tablets and ligacal medication, which in the prison is called liquid cost, because it knocks you out, didn't we? There. She got used to it. You keep taking tablets, you get used to them. You just become immune to them. She was immune to it all. But one of the things my nana did, she had voices. But she also spoke to Jesus. She used to talk about Jesus when I was 10. And I wouldn't allow people to come to my house on a Sunday because she'd be in there singing, one day at a time, sweet Jesus. And I'd think, oh, no. She's been at the rum too early. <laughs> one day at a time. And she'd be singing the old rugged cross and all that. She only had one, one single. She put it on that side and turned it over. But I wouldn't let my mates come because she'd sing about Jesus and she'd be talking about to Jesus and going to church and... I think, what on earth wrong with her? But she had voices as well. She was depressed and she had headaches and all that carry on. But I couldn't get away from these kind of voices. But then I went, I got sent to jail like, in undercover policeman in, in Wakefield when I was working on the doors in, in a rooftop gardens nightclub, 1990 to 1991, New Year's Eve. And uh, I got two years. And I got out of prison in 1992, but in that prison I had a bit of a breakdown. They reckon when I went, was put into St. Louis myself, they reckon I, I had like a psychotic break inwards, or I was a manic depressive. They couldn't make their mind up. They were just trying to find out what was wrong with me. But I loved it in there. I was three weeks sober. They had a disco at Christmas when I was there. I just invited my mates to come. Where are we going? St. Louis discotheque on Christmas. <laughs> so I met Elvis in there. I met a poached egg. There was all kinds of people, but my nana used to be there, and I was in there. And do you know what? I didn't really care. And yet I've gone from one, one extreme to another. But when I got out of that, that, the mental institution, I just went to the drink. I couldn't get away from these thoughts, the pain and anger, the memories of what I did, how I spoke to my mother, how I trip my stepdad, how I robbed people and hit people and cheated on people. I couldn't get rid of it in here. When I meet someone new, what I say to them, I'm bothered about the drink and the drugs and the whatever you're involved with. What I want to know is when you go to bed at night and you put your head on that pillar, what keeps you awake? That's what I'm interested in. That's what we deal with.
I don't, I'd see 100 young people every week in Sunderland, every week. I'm in there over the summer. And the first thing I say to them, what keeps you awake at night? Because that's what I'm interested in. That's what I want to help you with. Not your daily life. Because that's what was wrong with Graham. There was something in here that wouldn't let me sleep. I don't mean sleep. Wouldn't let me rest during the day. I started hearing these voices and I couldn't get rid of them, so I started drinking 28 pints of white lightning in a day, vodka, and that wasn't enough. So I started injecting heroin, smoke cracker came with the alcohol. I've gone from being, I remember I said I didn't post, from being one of the smartest men in Middlesbrough, where people could send champagne to the table because of the people I was with, to walk into any nightclub for free as a VIP because of the clothes we had on and the, the football firm and who we knocked about with, to being a tramp on the street. Now, let me tell you something. I always try and do things the best. I always try and be the best. And I was the best tramp in Middlesbrough. <laughs> I was. I've got an award for it. No, I was the best tramp on the, on the street. I was terrible, honestly. But what I didn't realise is I was scary. So I asked people for money all day long. I was begging, especially in 1995, Christmas, it was the worst, terrible day of my life in that time. I was a total tramp. Uh, I hadn't changed my clothes. I'm going to tell you this before you have your dinner, by the way. If you, if you don't think you need to give me a ring, the Sasha's got to London, I'll be round. <laughs> but I, I was that bad, I had to have my socks surgically removed because my skin had grown into my, the fungus and all that had grown into my socks. I didn't change my shorts that I had on my underwear for five or six months. I, I, I spat in my jumper. I was sick in my jumper, bile every morning. And some of my friends who I grew up with, well, every one of them said, Grammy can't come round the house because you're, you're scaring the kids. My best friend who, Phil and Sally will remember, went to the Oakwood, who got baptised there and got, got, uh, got married there. I was his best man. He came crying to me and said, Graham, you can't come round the house. And do you know what? I didn't care. I didn't care about no one anymore. And then I went into a coma. I was in a coma for six days. I was dead. They said I was dead. And for six days, I was in this coma. And my mother was called to the hospital. And I'm going to be honest with you, my mum gets a phone call. She's in St Andrews playing golf. She gets a phone call from the hotel saying, the police need to speak with you. And my mum said, that'll be about him. I'll give him a ring when I'm home. And then they rang her and she, they said to her, you need to come to the hospital. And she said, well, give me a ring when he's dead and I'll come and identify the body for the coroner. Because my son died when he was 22. That's what she said. That's what you, my mother said to the, to the hospital. And then they said, listen, we think he's dead now. You need to come to the hospital. So she came to the hospital with my stepdad. She couldn't believe how many people were there saying goodbye. My friend, bless him, who, who died five years ago, called Lee Harrison. He was a DJ and he played a song for me, my favourite song, but believe it or not, was a song called Searching by Change, the lead singer with Luther Vandross. And the favourite part of the song was, I remember it well when I, when I came out the coma, was um, there I was in the dark of the night looking around for the warmth of the light. And all my life I'd been dancing to that song and listening to it. I didn't realise that's what I was looking for. There's people in this room looking for the warmth of the light. 
I didn't understand it. I didn't have a clue about it. I was the furthest thing you could ever imagine from being walking with Jesus, ever. Honestly. And I was in this coma, and my mum come and she said to me, I couldn't believe how many people were there saying goodbye to you. Because Lee said, guys, I just want to announce some of Big Graham's dead. We've just been told he's, he's now dead. I'm playing this song for him. People left. This is how important I must have been. They left drinks behind. Like they, had, they had drinks in it as well. <laughs> but they came to say goodbye to me at the hospital. My mum gets to the hospital. She gets stuck into a room with Dr. Cole Smith, and he says, there's the forms. I'm asking you, you need to sign them, turn the machine off to keep them alive. And then there was a lad called Pete and Aidan and Nicky, and uh, there was an organisation run by Patrick Hinton called Teen Challenge on the streets of Middlesbrough, started in 1995. This was now August the 9th, August the 15th, 1996. And um, they came to the hospital and said, can we pray for your son? Now this time, the people praying all around the world. For me, I didn't even know that. And they came into a room where my mum was, and she had the forms with Tony. And they put their hands on me and said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, give this man new life, and I woke up. Came back to life. And then I went back to sleep, and then the, came, the doctor called Smith come, my mum went and got him and said, he's out of the coma, he's out of the, the critical, he's made a remarkable recovery. So my mum said, well, you just told me to sign these forms, and he's dead. He had no answers, neither did my mum. But these lads came the next day and started telling me about Jesus, and this is some of the training I do. <laughs> You've got to be very careful what jargon you use with people who don't know Jesus. <laughs> they started telling me this story about this man who died on a cross whose blood just spilt for me. And I just thought they were off the reds, on acid. Thought they'd been drinking more vodka than I have. But nevertheless, because my mum had said they prayed for me, I, I give them a bit of respect. And as my mum talked to me about them praying, I said to me, Mum, who did they pray to? Like, these are telling me about Jesus. She said, yeah, that's who they pray to, Jesus. I was there with Tony. And I said, what does Jesus want to know about a scumbag like me for? See, I only thought Jesus was interested in nice people who didn't do wrong things, didn't do bad things like me. And my mum said I had no answers, so I just was in hospital for seven weeks. I had to get taught to walk again, you know, by them physiotherapists. Them to come and get you and get you walking again, get you walking. And I'm up walking. After seven weeks, I could leave the hospital. I got it right the first place. I was going to call them physioterrorists. I stopped myself in case there's a few here. I've already got Sally going to beat me up. I don't want any of you physioterrorists still down there. So I, I, I was out the coma. I was seven weeks in the in, in hospital. I left the hospital. I needed a purpose. I had people tell me about Jesus, people tell me about the street, people offering me money and clothes, and I didn't know what I wanted. But all I knew, from the moment I opened my eyes and see my mother, and I was conscious that I'd never drink again, I'd never smoke again, and I'd never take drugs again. I knew it, never, 26 years ago. 26 years ago, I said, on the 15th of August, 1996, which is next week, I said, I will never, ever take drugs 
I'll never smoke and I'll never drink again. I haven't for 26 years. And I said, I didn't know about the violence. I didn't know about how else because I think the violence was the biggest pull on me. But I left that hospital needing a purpose. I went back to Winniebanks and I seen some people. I wanted to help them. And I went to an alpha course at the Oakwood Centre. And there was a lad called Martin Ruddick. I recognised his name from when I was young. He lived up in this posh place called Nunthorpe. We used to go there. We used to go up there looking for rich women. <laughs> I used to go looking for a rich girlfriend. I found loads, but when the dad knew who I was, I was gone. That was history. <laughs> Your history, you can't come out anymore. My dad won't let me see you. I was like, oh, why? I'm a good lad. But on the Alpha course, I didn't know anything about Jesus. And the first time I heard about him was, I heard who he was, and then I heard who he died, why he died. I heard other talks. I knew nothing about the Bible, I knew nothing about praying. But on November the 9th, 1996, at quarter three, in uh, Saltburn, I was in this like, bed and breakfast place, and I held my hands out and I said, Jesus, if you were real, show me you love me, because words aren't enough. Because that, that word loves a man-made manipulation tool, which I've used many times, sadly. But if it's real, you'll show me you love me. And I fell back in my chair and I was weeping. I was sat next to a man called Mike Horner. I remember weeping, looking at him, saying, what time is it? He said, quarter to three. That's how I know exactly when it was. And I was weeping and weeping and weeping. And the tears weren't of that little boy who used to cry himself to sleep most nights, wondering where his mum was, wondering what was going to happen to him. These were tears of joy. They were tears of hope. I wasn't planning my mum married a, a violent idiot. The only difference between him and me was he at women and I at men. I was the same as him. I, I did the same things as him, only I did it to men. And that was one of the nights that he braided her and raped her, I was born. And as I sat there weeping, I knew three things in my life had to be true. One is where I'm from or where I am and where I'm going. I realised that that night, a man and woman didn't plan me. So I must be so special that God planned me. So I was rejoicing. I was weeping with joy that I was so special that God wanted me. I knew who I was. I was a child of God. So I knew that that day would be the beginning of my ministry. So on November the 9th, 1996, at quarter three, I began my ministry. And I promised Jesus that I would never go a day without telling people that he loves them. 26 years now, coming up. I needed to know who he was because I didn't have a clue who he was. But what, all I can tell you is that he loved me and that I belonged with him. I didn't know anything else other than that. And then I started reading the scriptures, started praying, growing a relationship with Jesus. And I've seen some amazing things, but one of the things I prayed for a lot was for a wife. I went to God with a bit of skin on. And on, in a, 
1998, I went to the School of Ministry, Teen Challenge School of Ministry in London. And the last night I was there, I went into a church called um, City Gate, Ilford. And I, I, was, I was praying and then I shared my story because we were leaving that day, the next day. It was graduation night. I shared my story and we all got our awards and then I was about to go and this man came up to me and said, Graham, there's two girls and the lads want to listen. You said you're telling your story. And one of them was Natasha, one was Naomi, Natasha's sister, and the other one was Ike, who was now Naomi's husband. I went to the back of this church and told them my story, and I left. And as I was leaving, I felt God say to me, go back and give them your phone number. Honest, ridiculous, they live 260 miles away. Why are they ever going to come to Middlesbrough? So I went back and I said, Jesus, I said to them, Jesus just told me to give you my phone number. If you're ever in Middlesbrough, which maybe you not might be, you'll come and see me, give me a ring, I'll meet up with you. And I didn't realise, and Natasha will tell you this, she isn't bothered about this, I used to be sat on the front row with the students from King Challenge School of Ministry. She was sat four seats back. And as I was praying, as I was worshipping Jesus, she opened her eyes one night when I was there. And the Lord said, oh, that's your husband, about me. And she said to her sister, that, that's my husband there. If he's my husband, he's going to give me his phone number. We've been married 23 and a half years now. So, the Lord's awesome. But that's all I wanted. I wanted a family. I've got two great boys. Boaz was going to come, but he's caught up somewhere. Caleb's gone to work. He's working hard with all. But he's also at UCL, Boaz. He's playing football at Dalton at the moment. But the thing is, is in my life, I only ever dreamed of having a family. God was faithful. He was faithful to me, even though I've not been always faithful to him. I want to pray for, for us today because I know there's people in this room who were struggling. You know, what, what Graham said earlier, I felt, I was praying this morning, I felt it because I'm going through something at the moment. Not a major thing, really, on the, on the, on the scheme of things, you know. My mum died last year, but it's nothing to do with that. But what I'm saying is she died, that's a major thing. Not really, she's going to see the Lord, but I'm going through something. And I felt this morning that people in this room have got some issues going on. And I also know that there's people in this room who don't know Jesus. And I know there's some people in this room who think they know Jesus, but don't. And I come across this all the time, all around the country, all around Europe that people are walking with Jesus and they don't really know how to. And I, and I know that Jesus wants you to begin something today. So we're going to pray. I think Jenny's going to come and just put some music on and the lads is going to put some music on and I, I need to pray for us. I really believe the salvation. That's, my, that's what my main thing is about, is salvation. But then healing. There's people in this room who need healing. When I came back to life, I seen a vision in the coma. And I didn't know anything about the Bible whatsoever, not one thing about the Bible. The only time I'd ever seen the Bible was in prison and I smoked it. I didn't read it, I smoked it. And what happened was, 
I was seeing this vision of me being on fire, melting. And a great big hand come put me in this pure water. And later on, Patrick said to me, do you know in Revelation 22 verse 1, it says, there's a river that flows from the throne of God. It's called the river of life. I didn't even know that. And there's people in this room who need to jump in that river of life. Christians, people who follow Jesus, you need to jump in it. So we're going to do some business this morning. I thought I'd been quite good with time. I usually speak for hours. That's why I've got a chair, really. <laughs> well, why could you have a chair? No, I shouldn't. <laughs> so we're going to pray. <laughs> I'm going to ask you to do some stuff. That's the pizza's telling me we won't be long. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for today, Lord. I want to thank you for the gift of life. I want to thank you for the gift of, of air, of oxygen. Lord, I want, to, I want to thank you that in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 17 it says, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the, Spirit, where the Lord is, the Spirit is and there's freedom. <laughs>